Your film is now ready to be shown. Good evening. I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. This is a special extra episode of the podcast. Tonight, the Facebook whistleblower who took a trove of internal research to Congress, to the Wall Street Journal, and we now know also to the Securities and Exchange Commission, revealed herself on 60 Minutes. She is Frances Haugen, a former Facebook data scientist and product manager in the now disbanded Civic Integrity team. She worked at the company for nearly two and a half years. An engineer with an MBA, she previously has experience at Pinterest, Yelp, and Google. One of the Wall Street Journal's reports on the trove of documents Haugen brought forward is an article by Keech Hagee and Jeff Horwitz with the headline, Facebook tried to make its platform a healthier place. It got angrier instead. The article says that when data scientists at Facebook made management aware that changes to its algorithm were making Facebook an angrier place and put forward ideas to, quote, curb the tendency of the overhauled algorithm to reward outrage and lies, Mr. Zuckerberg resisted some of the proposed fixes, the documents show, because he was worried they might hurt the company's other objective, making users engage more with Facebook, unquote. Haugen says the documents she provided to the journal prove that Facebook is contributing to division and polarization in the United States and elsewhere in the world. Here's a taste of the discussion with 60 Minutes correspondent and anchor Scott Pelley. To quote from another one of the documents you brought out, We have evidence from a variety of sources that hate speech, divisive political speech, and misinformation on Facebook and the family of apps are affecting societies around the world. When we live in an information environment that is full of angry, hateful, polarizing content, it erodes our civic trust, it erodes our faith in each other, it erodes our ability to want to care for each other. The version of Facebook that exists today is tearing our societies apart and causing ethnic violence around the world. Earlier in the day, Facebook Vice President for Global Affairs and Communications Nick Clegg appeared on CNN's Reliable Sources with Brian Stelter, where he attempted to qualify the platform's relationship to polarization in particular. And look, I think this, I think it gives people false comforts to assume that there must be a technological or a technical explanation for ah, the issues of political polarization in the United States. You think States. it's too easy, it's, it's too easy to say it's Facebook's fault? Well. Well, I think it would be too easy, surely, to suggest that with a tweak to an algorithm, somehow all the disfiguring polarization in U.S. politics would suddenly evaporate. Clegg's comments echo those of Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg, who appeared before Congress in March, where he gave this diagnosis of the country's problems and his platform's role in it. The reality is our country is deeply divided right now, and that isn't something that tech companies alone can fix. We all have a part to play in helping to turn things around, and I think that starts with taking a hard look at how we got here. Now, some people say that the problem is that social networks are polarizing us, but that's not at all clear from the evidence or research. Polarization was rising in America long before social networks were even invented, and it's falling or stable in many other countries where social networks are popular. Others claim that algorithms feed us content that makes us angry because it's good for business, but that's not accurate either. I believe that the division we see today is primarily the result of a political and media environment that drives Americans apart. 
And we need to reckon with that if we're going to make progress. Now, I know that technology can help bring people together. We see it every day on our platforms. Facebook is successful because people have a deep desire to connect and share, not to stand apart and fight. And we believe that connectivity and togetherness are more powerful ideals than division and discord, and that technology can be part of the solution to the challenges our society is facing. Haugen brought forward documents that described the internal dialogue about the company's reaction to January 6th. Haugen says Facebook understood the danger to the 2020 election, so it turned on safety systems to reduce misinformation. But many of those changes, she says, were temporary. And as soon as the election was over, they turned them back off, or they changed the settings back to what they were before to prioritize growth over safety. And that really feels like a betrayal of democracy to me. The Wall Street Journal itself did a podcast with Haugen, hosted by Kate Leinbaugh. In one segment, Haugen describes how Facebook scrambled to put measures back in place that would limit harms on its platform only after the insurrection. A few weeks after the Civic Integrity team was disbanded, there were the Capitol riots. Yes. What was that moment like in Facebook? Facebook turned off all sorts of protections that it had turned on for the 2020 election, right after the election. And the reason they turned off those protections, so these are things around, like, how reactive is the platform? Like, is it viral? Those things about ranking, right? Like, some of those signals that make it easier for angry things to go out, they got tamped down a little bit for the election because they didn't want to have riots at the election. But all those things make Facebook grow a little slower. And so they turned off all those safety mechanisms after, or they went back to their old settings after the election. And the insurrection happens, and immediately they throw them back on. Nick Clegg and Mark Zuckerberg are right about a few things. Certainly, Facebook is not the primary cause of political polarization in the United States. There are deep cleavages in this country that have existed for a long time, long before social media. Hyperpartisan media, especially on the right, bears enormous blame for the spread of disinformation, hate, and division in this country. And Donald Trump is a uniquely polarizing figure, one who tapped especially into the deep racial animus in this country and used it to drive people apart and ultimately to incite a crowd of his supporters to attempt to overthrow the certification of his defeat on January 6th. But does that mean that Facebook's critics are wrong to focus on its role on January 6th? Are they wrong to be concerned about what role this massive and massively profitable company may do to drive polarization or how its systems and the incentives they create interact with already polarized societies? Listeners of this podcast will know that I recently helped to write a report based on a review of more than 50 social science studies and interviews with more than 40 academics, policy experts, activists, and current and former industry people that concluded that while Facebook probably doesn't cause political polarization in the first place, it does exacerbate it. After the report, published by the NYU Center for Business and Human Rights, went public, another important paper appeared that confirms this conclusion. In the Annals of the International Communication Association, Emily Cuban and Christian von Skorsky published a research article titled The Role of Social Media in Political Polarization, a Systematic Review. I spoke to Emily to learn more about the paper, which examined 94 articles on 121 studies that assessed the role of social media and media in shaping political polarization. Here's Emily. So my name is Emily Cuban, and I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Koblenz-Landau, but I also actually have an affiliation with uh, University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill 
in their psychology department as well. You have taken on a systematic review of the role of media and social media in political polarization in this new paper that is out. Tell us just a little bit about the methodology for this. You've looked at, I think, nearly 100 studies across the world that looked at this question. Tell us a little bit about how you and your colleagues set out to answer this question. Yeah, so we actually started by trying to find basically every quantitative paper that is out there on this topic. So we just chose Web of Science, which is the largest database um, that involves interdisciplinary research because, right, like this, this um, considering the role of media and political polarization isn't just within one discipline. You can think about communication researchers studying this, psychologists, political scientists, et cetera. Um, and so we used Web of Science thinking that this would be a really good interdisciplinary database to use. And we simply looked up political polarization in media. Those were our three words. Um, and to be clear, when we use polarization, we, we tried spelling it both the English way with a Z and the uh, American English and the British English way with the S. <laughs> um, and we both we got the same number of results. We started doing this review in August 2020. So we were looking for anything before that. The access to the database that we had went all the way back to 1900. Um, so we were really hoping to find basically everything out there that's on the subject. And in total, we found 751 articles. But then within that, you have to go through each article and say, okay, is it first of all in English? Is it really studying what we're thinking it's supposed to be studying or is it studying something similar, but not exactly what we're focusing in on? So for example, like focusing on extremism in terms of right-wing authoritarianism, this wouldn't be the most appropriate thing. So we're really interested in in studying um, how uh, media specifically, whether it be traditional media sources or social media sources are influencing and shaping political polarization specifically. And that needed to really be the core um, analysis that the paper was studying. Um, it needed to be quantitative, as I said previously. Yeah, and it couldn't be a conference paper, it had to be peer reviewed. And with all of these qualifications, we ended up with 94 articles, which we then analyzed. And it, within those 94 articles, we actually had 121 studies. Let's just get a couple of things on the table at first uh, that, you know, polarization is not necessarily a bad thing, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. For example, the most extreme form of no polarization is like the Communist Party in China or something where you only have one core group. And there's also, of course, consequences for this. So you want like in any society, it can actually be beneficial to have some polarization, some disagreement, um, some differences between parties. But there's, of course, places where it becomes too extreme and there's also negative consequences for this polarization. And you assess that a lot of the research is focused on the United States, likely because of probably reflecting back the political circumstances in this country. Yes, that's that's one of the reasons um, one could argue. I mean, it's very apparent to people. It's easy to see that, that polarization is happening in the U.S. and that this, of course, is a very interesting and relevant topic. But we also see not just within um, this specific topic of study, but also in the sciences more generally, especially the social sciences, that there is an overabundance of research on the U.S. and not in other countries. So this is just following that trend line. But I could imagine that this is even further exacerbated given the political climate within the U.S. specifically. So I do for the reader, I for the listener, I should say, I just want to uh, make sure I spell out your research questions. So I, I find them in the paper uh, as first how can the current state of research on media and political polarization be characterized regarding A, the development of the field over time, and B, the country of samples? 
The second question, what do we know about media and political polarization in regard to A, media contents? For example, media coverage increase, is media coverage increasingly polarized? Uh, and B, media exposure. For example, do news consumers increasingly use politically polarized media contents? Uh, and C, media effects. Uh, so, for example, how can certain types of media exacerbate or inhibit political polarization? And so then you pose the third research question, how is polarization discussed and examined in the literature? Um, so just a quick note on the on the method, like what did people actually do? You sat down and, and coded these studies and, and looked at their findings. Yeah. So the first step was to um, focus on a very like systematic coding process where we're looking at, for example, publication date and um, location of the samples that an American sample is a German sample, et cetera. Um, and this was a much more systematic thing where we had a research assistant actually go through the articles and code for the, these few categories. The other part to answer the rest of our questions was uh, more of a quantitative approach or a qualitative approach, I should say. And in this case, that was um, us actually going through each paper and saying, what's the core findings here? What is their like take home message from their paper? And then gathering all of these take home messages together to see if there's some kind of systematic patterns or disagreement between papers. And um, that's what we ended up reporting on uh, primarily throughout throughout our piece. So let's go through a couple of the questions um, just as you set them out. So, you know, our first one here is uh, really around the the current state of research on political polarization, its development, uh, and where that research is coming from. Of course, not too surprisingly, as we had mentioned previously, um, there's a lot of U.S. samples in the study. Um, I think 80 of the 120 studies or something were just from within the U.S., and what we've also noticed is that there's this trend line of increasing work on this topic, more so than just like the average growth rate of scientific publications. It's really increasing at a very fast pace ever since about 2012. So um, the earliest articles we can find on this are from the early 2000s, maybe like one or two articles before 2005. Um, and then um, there's increasingly like more and more publications on the topic. And then we hit 2012. And ever since then, there's been a drastic increase I mean, the number of publications that we've seen. What's really interesting is that we actually see the highest point in um, starting in the year of 2020. However, as I mentioned earlier, it's interesting because we stopped looking at publications starting um, that um, were published after the date of July 31st, 2020. So we didn't even get the full year of 2020, and yet it was like way above the rest of the um, um, years of publications on this topic. So you really see this drastic increase occurring. So then you get into uh, media contents, so both traditional and, and social media contents in this, in this second query. Um, what, what do you think is important to point out here about, about what you found around research into the contents of media? So what we're seeing is that increasingly um, the content is becoming more polarized. So when a news article, for example, is discussing um, climate change issues, we're seeing that increasingly over time, over the last two decades or so, this topic is becoming much more politicized and polarized in the way that it's being discussed. We're also seeing that politicians are actually becoming incentivized um, to highlight polarizing content. So if they become more polarized in their tweets or what they say to a news reporter, those politicians get more airtime, get more spread of their tweets, they get more retweets, et cetera. So this is suggesting that we're actually incentivizing people to be polarized if their goal is to get more uh, publicity, for example. So then after media content, you also focus on this idea of media exposure and its role. 
Yeah. So when we talk about media content, that's like literally what does the news media say or social media say? What is the content that people are reading? Selective or exposure, on the other hand, is what people are actually seeing, what they're choosing to see or what they're being exposed to from algorithms. And what we're finding is that people tend to selectively um, expose themselves to information that agrees with their own worldviews, which isn't too surprising based on past psychological research. Um, however, what was one of the most interesting findings in this was that when people do selectively expose themselves to media that agrees with them, to pro-attitudinal media, they consistently become more both ideologically polarized and effectively polarized, meaning um, disliking their political opponents to a greater degree. And this is a consistent finding across all papers that were studying this topic. Contrarily, there's also been some research focusing in on counter-attitudinal information. So this is um, if I choose to expose myself to information that I disagree with. Um, for example, if I am a Democrat and I'm listening, to, I decide to watch Fox News one day. And what are the implications of this? And in some, the findings for this are a little bit um, less consistent. And so some articles suggest, okay, perhaps counter-attitudinal information um, shows you more diverse um, yeah, information or resources, and this can make you less polarized. However, um, there's other research suggesting that this actually does the, the exact opposite, and there's a backfire effect. So if I'm exposed to this counterattitudinal information, I actually become more polarized. Um, and so we don't really know which mechanisms are causing this, of like whether or not I become more polarized being exposed to counterattitudinal information. Um, however, this is definitely something that should be looked further into in future research. You know, you conclude on uh, this idea of that consistency of like-minded people makes people more ideologically and effectively polarized. Does this relate back to the filter bubble concept or do you see this as a different phenomenon? I think that it's definitely related, right? Because when we're thinking of when filter bubbles happen or when echo chambers are happening, it's because we're selectively choosing which kinds of content on social media we want to see. So I, I start liking these things or commenting on these things and then I'm shown, shown more of them and I get um, further and further pushed into like a specific e echo chamber, for example, or filter bubble. And so that's very related when you're thinking about uh, selective exposure to pro-attitudinal information. I think that they're, they're very tied uh, to one another. The, the difference with this one though, however, with, with the research that I'm talking about here with pro-attitudinal information is that it's also taking um, not just the context of social media, but also looking into the impacts of this information on traditional news media. So if I'm reading a newspaper or I'm listening to the radio, um, and that's a little bit removed from this filter bubble um, um, concept, but it is definitely related. Then we get into to media effects. So uh, really the effect of media and social media on polarization. Uh, what can you tell us about that? A lot of the research, when you're focusing in on media effects, this is usually when researchers are conducting experiments to seeing what kinds of media do what. Um, in this case, what kinds of media cause people to become more polarized? And we see a variety of ways that media can uh, make people more polarized. For example, if, it, if um, people read um, negative comments about their political opponents, they, be, they can become more um, polarized. Or if they're focusing in on reading partisan media versus nonpartisan media, this can exacerbate polarization. Um, but what was one really interesting pattern that we found was that there was very little research focusing in on what we could do to actually depolarize. So like, are there times where media can actually reduce political polarization? Given that we see that media can systematically increase polarization, perhaps there are certain mechanisms that and um, flips of switches that we can do that can also do the opposite. 
Um, we only found a few studies that were able to do this, one of which, um, an example of this was when uh, media highlights the importance of open-mindedness. So if we highlight to our readers or the users, being open-minded is important, that then the media can actually depolarize people and make them um, feel less hatred or animosity towards their political opponents. You also make a statement here on an agreement on the studies across a variety of contexts about the relationship between social media and ideological and effective polarization. How, how would you characterize that relationship? Yeah, well, given the, the past uh, research that when we take them all, all of it together, it's really suggesting that social media has this tendency to polarize people, both in terms of how extreme their positions become ideologically polarized, or in terms of how much they dislike their political opponents. So overall, we see this consistent pattern where polarization is increasing with social media use. Um, both the content is becoming the yeah the content is becoming more polarized. The um, people's selective exposure to content is driving them to become more polarized. And also, when we manipulate social media, it makes people more polarized. Of course, there are some studies that show that there are less there is no effect or that there's a depolarizing effect, but these are definitely the minority. Um, and I also should note that many of those studies don't actually focus on major social networking sites. So for example, they don't focus on Facebook and Twitter, but maybe use a social media site that's popular in South Korea, which is interesting, of course, in its own right, but that's not covering a major social networking site that people all across the world are using. Um, so it's harder to generalize that. So some social media executives have suggested that this quote unquote widespread perception that uh, political and social polarization has grown because of the influence of social media that 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 it's not borne out by the evidence. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that there is in, in science, it's very difficult to say X causes Y. Um, you can't you can't say that this definitely is causing this. However, there's um, a very strong correlation um, between the rise of social media and political polarization. I think um, a lot of this actually has to do with the spread of misinformation. I think that that has a huge impact. However, I have to agree in some capacity that there is, of course, research out there suggesting that um, social networking sites don't necessarily predict uh, political polarization. There, it seems like there's a lot of mixed results on this, and there's in very specific situations and, and circumstances, it's, it does indeed seem that social media is exacerbating these um, issues with polarization. However, in other cases, it seems like it might not be. But I want to highlight that most of the studies that are, are focusing in on our, our biggest social networking sites, Facebook and Twitter, are suggesting that there is some kind of correlation between the two. However, of course, there needs to be future um, research, um, further understanding the, the underlying mechanisms that are really getting, um, that are really explaining um, what is driving this political polarization. You conclude on this section, here we find agreement across studies that social media in a variety of contexts can exacerbate both ideological and effective polarization. Uh, and it's right to assume that you're, you're talking there largely about the major platforms, which are the majority of the study. Yeah, absolutely. So exactly. So the, the, the studies that are focusing in on Facebook and Twitter specifically are the ones that are really driving from this point of the connection between social media and, and political polarization. So I want to um, also talk a little bit about what I think of as one of the other findings or important uh, points of discussion from this, which is that there's so little discussion of what can be done to depolarize or what can be done to address 
uh, affective polarization in particular, one would think that given that these social media platforms are at such scale are able to perturb us and polarize us uh, or exacerbate polarization uh, to the extent that they do, um, they might be very interesting tools to help create a space where there can be more a deliberation and maybe perhaps uh, even have a, a depolarizing effect. What do you make of, of, of that space? Yes, this is the, the area that I think has a lot of potential for promising uh, research in the future. This is definitely something I hope to be focusing in on. Um, I think that it's very telling that we see that that media can be moving polarization in one direction and therefore arguably might be able to move it in the other direction, make us less polarized, make us hate our opponents a little bit less. Um, and so this is something that I am hoping to be studying in the future in, in, in the next few years. I also think this is becoming a space that um, other researchers are getting involved with, recognizing that this actually might be the perfect place to get um, to meet people where they are. Right. Like we, we make lots of interventions in psych, um, psychology and political science research. We make lots of interventions of trying to get political opponents to um, improve their relationships between one another. But in reality, when we think about the real world, are they actually going to be motivated to want to engage and have these interventions take place so that they can actually bridge divides? I would argue it's quite difficult. And so therefore, it might be best to implement these um, interventions in a space such as social media or the news media, but especially social media, where people can just be looking at their phone and um, change their belief systems a little bit about um, who their political opponents are and what they think about them. Some of these experiments that look at the relationship between polarization and social media involve taking people off social media for a period of time to see how their perspectives change. One of the things I wonder about when I think about that type of study is to what extent at this point in time now, you know, nearly two decades into the social media era, can we reduce or take out the effect of social media on politics more generally, on the behavior of politicians, the behavior of the news media? Is it, is it even possible to kind of take that variable out? Fully? Like disentangle social media from all yeah. these other contexts. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, yes, of course, we can get people off of social media, but they still know what it is and know what's on there and what they've seen on there has probably impacted their worldview long term when we, when people have been on Facebook for 10 years or whatever. So it's pretty hard to say, like getting off for 30 days, is that really going to make a meaningful difference in their worldviews like long term? Um, I think that the, the biggest challenge in disentangling social media from all of these other contexts that we're talking about politics and traditional media, et cetera, is that many people are beginning to, given that now we live in, very, in a very ideologically polarized society, not just politically speaking, but also even like geographically speaking, there's big differences in where Democrats and Republicans are tending to live now, meaning that many people are not interacting with their political opponents on an everyday basis. And yet they still are building opinions about these individuals. So like, I might not be interacting with Many of my political opponents at the grocery store or at my friend's house or my neighbors, et cetera, they're all, um, instead, we're all very um, politically homogenous. And yet I'm still building my perceptions of my political opponents. And how am I doing this? I'm doing it by seeing what I see online. So I might not see that many Republicans, but then I see them all online and I make a bunch of perceptions about them. And I think that building these perceptions online is quite a challenge to then just take remove people from that context. I still think that those perceptions have really had uh, really impact um, long term people's views 
of their opponents. So it's it's definitely um, going to be a challenge if we just all got off of Facebook right now to have that not be impacting our our worldviews of each other in the coming years. So knowing where we're at, you know, in the United States especially, which is not where you're at right now, you're in Germany, but maybe that's the best place to look back on it and to kind of think about its circumstances. Knowing how polarized the country is, how divided it is, what do you think is the responsibility of the social media platforms in this context? Yeah, absolutely. I, I would argue that social media has a, a place of accountability um, for this because it's not just about a company and what they, they're choosing to do with their own product. Um, this is now becoming our public space. This is the place where people are, are building their opinions about policy, about politics, about religion, about um, people that they agree and disagree with. This is becoming almost like a communal place. And therefore, companies should be held accountable in some capacity for this. They can't just say, oh, well, like I know we are, our product has implications for all of society, but we're not going to be responsible for that. Um, I think that you couldn't make that argument in many other businesses. So given, of course, there's plenty of, of factors that can influence how polarized a society becomes. But I, I would argue that social media is really playing a pretty big role in this. And they can't just say, oh, whoops, sorry, and walk away from that. I, I would argue they need to be, there needs to be some kind of responsibility on their end to try to improve the situation um, and potentially help us find ways to make their platforms less polarizing. What are you working on next? <laughs> I'm actually working on that exact topic. I will be working on finding ways we can use media to depolarize, um, primarily effectively depolarize people. So trying to make people dislike their opponents a little bit less, maybe even like them a little bit. Um, of course, that this is this is quite challenging. Um, but I am working on some interventions related to focusing on sharing your personal stories, your personal experiences rather than factual information with your political opponents. And what we're consistently finding is that people think personal experiences from their opponents are, are more true than objective facts. People tend to, in this age of misinformation and fake news, people are, are questioning and doubting facts a lot. And so when they hear them from their political opponents, they actually don't see it as true. They don't respect the people as much. And we're seeing a lot of consequences for this. So personal experiences, reduce partisan censorship, so reduce people's willingness to censor their political opponents, um, reduce their willingness to dehumanize them, and they also respect these individuals more. So getting into this idea of sharing stories versus sharing facts, especially in this misinformation era with social media, um, is the first avenue I'm taking at trying to answer these questions around ways in which we can use media to depolarize people. I guess if you could cast your mind forward a little bit, I mean, we're kind of like instrumenting the public sphere here, right? In a way that we, we've always been trying to do that. We've always been trying to understand where people's opinions come from and how that affects our politics, but we're getting a lot better at it. Where do you think this field is in 10 years time? I mean, do we have weather maps for effective polarization? I think actually in 10 years time, we're going to be shifting our direction a little bit away from polarization and more towards environmental communication, to be honest. I think that we're going to be dealing with issues of misinformation around climate change. And this is going to be the new hot topic in 10 years where we're going to try to find ways to share information that, that, that audiences need to hear and not listen to all of this misinformation. 
So I think that we're going to be steering towards this way, actually, which I know is a little bit different direction from where we where we are now. But I think that's going to be the, the new era of a bigger issue for social media. Well, Emily, you're an you're an optimist. You think that that's going to draw us together and make us more optimism. focused? <laughs> I think that we're still going to be have a lot of problems around political polarization, but the new big um, relevant issue, timely issue, will be environmental communication. And and the severity of that will, on some level, draw us together. It could draw, draw us together, but it could also pull us apart. There's going to be people. I mean, look at what's happened with the COVID um, nineteen pandemic. Um, some people are listening to the scientists and not listening to misinformation, but they're becoming more and more, more and more infuriated by people that are listening to disinformation. Um, and I would argue that that's driving polarization further. When people feel like they're they're that people that disagree with them are disregarding lives and livelihoods, um, it becomes uh, a real issue of concern where it's completely acceptable to dehumanize your political opponents. Many problems for you to work on for decades ahead. Thank you for talking to me today. I hope we'll talk again. Yeah, thank you so much. That's it for this show. I hope you'll send us your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. Thanks to our guests. And of course, thank you for listening. Tech Policy Press.